This is Dialogue with Drake and Debu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Debu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Our guest for today is the Honorable Bertie Chagger, Minister of Diversity, Inclusion, and Youth of Canada. And we'll be discussing three policy areas under the minister's jurisdiction today, anti-racism, youth policy, and Bill C-6. So this is a really exciting cabinet role and one that was new uh, starting in 2019. Uh, so this is for the first time that diversity and inclusion uh, has been recognized as its own area and departments as opposed to being included in other ones. And so again, the youth part of the portfolio was initially under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau throughout 2015 to 18. And then now combining those three areas of diversity, inclusion and youth handed to Minister Chagger in 2019. So the first policy area we'd be looking at today is the anti-racism strategy. This strategy covering years 2019 to 2022 was launched in July 2019. It focuses on three main pillars, demonstrating federal leadership, empowering communities, and building awareness and changing attitudes. So far, work done in this strategy has included the establishment on the, uh, of the anti-racism secretariat which is an interdepartmental secretariat looking at doing anti-racism work in all of the federal government's activities. So far, over $15 million have been invested as part of the anti-racism strategy to 85 different groups doing anti-racism work in Canada. In addition to this, a number of grants exist in order to help uh, diversify the community, such as the community support, multiculturalism, and anti-racism initiatives. In 2018, the federal government launched its conversation with youth. And so what this was, was both in-person and online consultations with youth to learn about their unique experiences as young people in Canada, but as well to learn what they envision for a youth policy. And so this was used to inform the federal government's efforts to create what is now known as Canada's youth policy. So Canada's youth policy was launched in 2019, following those consultations with youth across Canada, and it included six priority areas, leadership and impact, health and wellness, innovation, skills and learning, employment, truth and reconciliation, and environment and climate action. Finally, the third policy area we'll be covering today is Bill C-6. On October 1st, 2020, Bill C-6, an act to amend the criminal code or conversion therapy was introduced by the Minister of Justice. The preamble stated, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons and in particular the children who are subjected to it, Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation and gender identity, including the myth that a person's sexual orientation and gender identity can and ought to be changed, and whereas, in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. Our guest today is an alumna of Waterloo University, was first elected as a member of parliament in 2015, and is the first minister of diversity, inclusion, and youth. Welcome, Minister Bardish Chager. Thank you so much, Minister, for taking the time with us this evening. How are you doing? 
I'm doing really, I'm doing really well. I've um, been concerned about a lot of people because the COVID pandemic has been so unprecedented and challenging. So hoping everyone's keeping well and safe. Mm, absolutely. That's been something top of mind for us as well. Typically, we end each of our episodes, you know, with different things happening, uh, you know, in the future to be aware of. But more recently, it's definitely been, you know, stay safe and, and take care of one another. So definitely top of mind for us. But we saw, speaking of COVID, you recently did a virtual tour of our little island, PEI. What was that like? It was an awesome experience. The only regret I have is that it was virtual. So I've been wanting to come visit um, PEI, um, I would say my whole life. And this year, 2020 marked my 40th birthday. And when my sister said, where do you want to travel to to celebrate your 40th birthday? I picked PEI <laughs> and all of a sudden the COVID pandemic hit. Uh, so I did not get to come, but my team did arrange for an amazing tour, which allowed me to see the many different facets of PEI. And it's such an amazing province. You call it little, but it's so mighty. <laughs> um, and the tour that I was able to have virtually allowed me to really get a sample of all the different segments of society. Absolutely. And, you know, we saw that you met with so many different community groups, many of our friends, and everyone was just really excited to have you here. And, you know, we hope you'll be able to visit here physically very soon. And if you need a tour guide, please call us. <laughs> I'll tell you, you have amazing MPs there that represent you so well. So they also have extended the offer and I look forward and I was saying to MP Wayne Easter, he, you know, said every single time a minister comes to visit, we offer them a good meal. Um, so you can turn off your, your camera and you will not get a good meal, but I look forward to being able to interact uh, with my colleagues as well as all of you. But within that tour, we went to visit with the PEI Association for Newcomers to Canada. We met with the Black Cultural Society of PEI. We met with uh, PEI Pride and what a force that they were. On a aussi partagé une conversation avec la coopérative d'intégration francophone de l'île de Prince Edward. We met with the Adventures Group. I'm not sure if you know them, but so amazing to see what young people are doing for future generations and then bridging that gap. Canadian Wildlife Federation, which provides opportunities for locals to not only do great work in PEI, but to travel the rest of the country. We met with Generation XX. Um, and I also got to touch base with the constituency youth councils uh, that members of parliament had set up, um, echoing the prime minister's youth council that Prime Minister mm -hmm. Justin Trudeau brought to the forefront. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the perfect segue right here into our first question, which is about youth policy. So uh, in May of last year, the federal government launched the youth policy, which was, you know, following extensive Canada-wide consultations. Uh, and this policy identified six priorities, leadership and impact, health and wellness, innovation, skills and learning, employment, truth and reconciliation, and environment and climate change. Considering how wide-ranging and, you know, comprehensive this policy is, are there any specific actions, timelines, or metrics involved with these six priority areas? And so, Sandra, you're absolutely correct. For the first time in the history of our country since Confederation, we have a youth policy. And the first Minister of Youth that we had in Canada was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So that's a portfolio he maintained uh, or kept when he became Prime Minister in 2015. 
in November 2019, he asked me to take on these responsibilities, mm -hmm. which was really exciting. And those six pillars that you've referred to were actually created by youth for youth for the future of our country to make sure that the government's focus was actually where young people wanted it to be. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the entire world, all Canadians, and disproportionately certain segments, youth are no exception. So within that policy, we also committed to publish the State of Youth Report, and the consultations are going on right now. So mm -hmm. if you know any young people who have not had the opportunity to participate in them, I would say, please do go visit. Currently, the deadline is December 31st, 2020. And if you go to Canada.ca forward slash youth, you can find out more youth led organizations, organizations serving youth. We want to hear from you so that we actually know the state of all youth. Um, and so we anticipate uh, publishing this report in 2021. And it's important that we not only empower, but enable youth to have your say in your communities. Because as much as in Canada, diversity is our strength, Mm -hmm. The diversity goes beyond the shells we occupy. We're talking about the diversity of regions, of perspectives, experiences, of gender. So by hearing from young people, we will ensure that this report actually not only listens to youth, but represents their voices and helps to provide the country direction as to where we need to go. Mm -hmm. That's awesome to hear. I know uh, as someone who was a participant um, once on PEI with MP Peter Schiefke, as well as another time in Ottawa again uh, with MP Schiefke for the initial consultations for this youth policy, it was awesome to see the on the ground kind of grassroots consultations to really learn about those experiences. And then now again, you know, for Sweda and I who are looking at things through the policy perspective with the state of the youth report that focuses on different uh, intersecting identities, um, such as for indigenous peoples, such as uh, gender identities and really kind of figuring out um, what are the unique experiences in each of those, uh, but as well, you know, how do those intersect with other identities and overall this kind of general youth policy. Uh, but as you mentioned, the State of Youth report will be coming out next year with each of these kind of understandings of the unique experiences. How do you envision the State of the Youth report being utilized um, as a tool for youth to leverage in order to ensure that federal policy moving forward is informed by this great content? So we're looking for youth aged 12 to 30 to provide their unique insight on the pillars of the State of the Youth Report and the pillars, just like you mentioned, environment and climate action, leadership and impact, employment, innovation skills and learning, truth and reconciliation, health and wellness. How will we utilize this information? First of all, we need to see what that information is. And so hopefully what comes out of that information is information and um, uh, insights to the government as to what works, what doesn't work. Also, you know, notifying the government as to where would they like to see the federal government um, really put some focus or where do we need to lean in on? What have we not been aware of? So I would say based on these consultations, it will inform the government as to the direction we take and some of the actions that we take and how we take those actions. I really appreciated your reference to uh, Peter Schiffke, who is a parliamentary secretary to the prime minister when he was the minister of youth. And it was because we know people who do know how to operate with government and they know how to get in touch with government. But what we also 
know is that there's a huge amount of people that don't work with government. Um, and that's why by getting onto the ground and being able to connect with people physically and now virtually because of the pandemic, it's important that we get into other people's backyards so that they feel that they should be part of the decision-making table. Another way that we're doing that is actually by making sure that there is youth voices, youth representatives on federally regulated boards. And that's also a commitment that we have. So in 2015, the prime minister brought gender parity to the cabinet table. When I became Minister of Diversity and Inclusion in Youth, if you look at my mandate letter, you'll see that we also want to ensure that the diversity of Canadians is also represented at the cabinet table. And one aspect of my portfolio is youth voices. So by ensuring that we actually have a spot that is tailored to having youth representation, that will actually help develop the way we shape the policies and programs we have in place. So I really look forward to that information. Um, and so because there is so much information being shared with the government right now, I have been really conscious about not um, kind of derailing the process and letting it be a true, authentic, open process that is transparent. So we're waiting for all the information to come in. Once it comes in, we will gather it. We will see where there are some synergies and opportunities and then be able to table that report for all Canadians to see. Absolutely. And, you know, this is something that's really exciting for us as well as, you know, we fall into the category of youth and we're also represented students uh, for a good number of years. So it's always interesting to see these uh, perspectives and these unique experiences come into play when we look at policymaking. But mm -hmm. if you look at, you know, as you mentioned, the diversity of Canadians as well. Another big part of the work that you have been doing has been anti-racism work. Of course, we know last year, the 2019-2022 anti-racism strategy was released, which included several components, such as, you know, the establishment of the anti-racism secretariat and other uh, funding initiatives. This was very timely, especially in 2020, when we see there was a rise in the number of community-led movements this year. If, we, if we're looking at you know, anti-racism work, what kind of role do you think the federal government should be playing here? So the anti-racism strategy that we set out to, to build and create in 2016 is a policy that is informed by Canadians, including their lived experiences. And that's why the anti-racism strategy, I would say is an evergreen document that's very current. And the anti-racism strategy really sets out the found, founding um, in preparing us to address many of the inequities and in, in, in inequalities that exist in Canada, and the ones that, as you say, have been amplified by the mm -hmm. COVID-19 pandemic. So building a foundation for change is Canada's anti-racism strategy, 2019 to 2022, and it was created by Canadians for Canadians. And it sets out the establishment of the anti-racism secretariat, which we have done. Um, we have a director that's in place. The Prime Minister has said every single time we are developing policy or programs, it's important that we work with the anti-racism strategy uh, secretariat so that those voices are being represented and we know that we're conscious of about the decisions that we're making. And that strategy has three pillars. Demonstrating federal leadership is the first one, empowering communities is the second one, and building awareness and changing attitudes is the third one. So when you ask, what is the federal government's role? It's the first pillar. Leadership at the government level is essential because we are part of the decision makers. And it's true that there's no one law that's going to change all of us. We have to change ourselves, but the federal government can demonstrate leadership. So what did we do? We actually worked to build upon the second pillar, which is empowering communities and also enabling them. And it was exciting to be able to release the 85 projects from coast to coast to coast that will be funded um, through that program, $15 million. 
And then when we saw the fall economic statement that was released not too long ago, um, we saw an additional investment of $50 million because people on the ground really know what their communities need. But at the same time, Canada is massive when it comes to land mass. So with this <laughs> virtual announcement we had to make, we were actually able to create a network of these different projects and organizations involved so that they could share some of their best practices and actually lean on each other. So we didn't feel so isolated within our own communities, but we could actually work as Canadians, as a country, for each other. So that's some of the work that we've been doing and we will continue to build upon that work. And even with the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, it was the anti-racism secretariat that partnered up with Women and Gender Equality Canada to set up the Equity Seekings Community Task Force. So that whenever we came out with responses to the pandemic, we were really aware of who we were serving and who was going to have an impact. And then we've also redoubled our efforts when it comes to desegregated data, so that if it's not having the impact and outcomes that we um, envision, that we actually be able to course correct and make adjustments so that we were actually helping the very communities that need the support, because the reality is, is that we have many underserved and underrepresented communities. So how do we lift them up so that we all come out of this even stronger and better together? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and you make a very good point here when looking at, you know, underserved communities. And when you look at desegregated data as in, you know, the same policies are affecting different groups differently. And for a long time, we didn't have that specific amount of information. But when we're looking at you know, different equity-seeking groups, uh, one major group that has gained quite a bit of prominence this past summer has been the Black Lives Matter movement with you know, anti-Black racism specifically being part of a number of conversations. Um, there have been a lot of calls to action, including reanalyzing the way we do law enforcement, focusing on Black history and education. So how have these conversations influenced policymaking at the federal level? So, but, you know, I will tell you that I've been having a lot of conversations and I actually think that the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the need for the diversity and inclusion in youth portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, because we recognize that, yes, inequalities, inequities exist in our society, but it was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that came out really quickly and said systemic racism and discrimination exists in our country and in every segment of our society. And if you actually look at my plat my mandate letter, it actually speaks about how do we transform the decision-making table. And until that decision-making table has been transformed, at minimum, how do we ensure that um, the decisions we make at minimum are informed by lived experiences? Some of the programs we've come out with, including if you look at uh, the projects that were funded through the Anti-Racism Action Plan, um, actually focus on certain segments of society. With COVID-19, we have seen the return of the rise of anti-Asian racism. And so, you know, this really tells you that uh, within our societies, and we're really proud of our diversity, but a, a multicultural society, one that is truly open and diverse and inclusive, is a constant work in, uh, uh, work in uh, progress. So that it, it demands our effort and our attention and our care. We also came out with the Black Entrepreneurship Program. So how do we ensure that we are lifting certain communities up? And this is also an element that we brought out within our procurement strategy. We made sure that when the government of Canada was procuring, we were looking at women-led uh, and women-run organizations, but we also need to look at Black-owned businesses. And that's why even for myself, you know, and I think every community across the country has been trying to support local, looking at who are you 
supporting and how do we lift them up. So this work will continue. We will make sure that it is informed by um, Canadians, for Canadians. The, the Parliamentary Caucus, the Black Caucus that we have with all different party affiliations involved have also put out an open letter. The government takes it very seriously. Prior to that letter being released and even prior to the pandemic, if you look at my mandate letter, one of the bullets says that the Minister of Diversity and Inclusion and Youth is actually being equipped to work with all departments and agencies mm -hmm. across federal governments. And part of the work that the anti-racism strategy does and the Secretariat will be doing is actually working with all levels of governments and all um, segments of society to ensure that each of us plays the important role that we have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think a lot of things that we saw even, you know, this summer um, here on PEI specifically was um, there was such a, I'll say, kind of like eruption of like grassroots on the ground awareness about, you know, part one, the Black Lives Matter movement, but then as well, um, a lot of solidarity with Indigenous peoples. And so for PEI, we experienced all of that kind of an intersecting tandem uh, in, in solidarity with in the BIPOC communities here on PEI. Emma, and if I can, oh, sorry, sorry, if I can chime in there, but what was really also powerful about the, the amazing people in PEI and across mm -hmm. the country was their desire to want to also look at the, the spaces they occupy. Mm -hmm. And so rather than just saying it's about government, it was really about like, hey, where do I work? What decisions do I make? How do I create more inclusive spaces? And then how do I broaden my horizons and how do I learn more? And I think when it comes to our relationship with the First Peoples of Canada, we don't entirely know the history. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that we recognize that when it comes to our relationship with Indigenous peoples, it is not perfect and we have to improve upon it. And that's why when it comes to our commitment to lifting water boil advisories and making sure everyone has clean drinking water, our government has added resources to make sure that happens because it's essential um, that we make sure that we know what's taking place up the street or across the country. You're mm -hmm. absolutely correct, Emma. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, interesting to hear too from your experience, Minister, from visiting PEI, although virtually, um, that community kind of perspective, I think oftentimes we take that for granted on PEI. And I know Sweda and I both having worked in the nonprofit world and volunteering as well, a lot of it is intertwining and a lot of it is, oh, I know this person who works, you know, with El Nue, or I know this person who works with, um, you know, Peers Alliance. And so a lot of work um, on PEI is like that. So I think it's, it's really neat that um, you mentioned that as part of your experience. And I know one thing too, last year, uh, when Sweda and I had the opportunity to present to a pre-budget uh, submission with MP Sean Casey, we had learned about the experiences of uh, off-reservation Indigenous peoples. And I know for myself, that was a huge learning experience because like you said minister a lot of the experiences still aren't known yet um, as we're trying to unlearn and learn again uh, indigenous history uh, on PEI but as well in Canada uh, we know the federal government recently put out the indigenous community uh, support fund of course that was for COVID supports for indigenous peoples um, but again a repeated kind of comment from off-reservation indigenous peoples is that there is a lack of support. So how would you describe uh, the role of the federal government in supporting off-reservation Indigenous peoples? Is that a priority moving forward? And, and how does that tie in with the work that your department is doing in anti-racism kind of as a whole? 
So I would say that as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has said, our most important relationship is our relationship with the First Peoples of Canada, of this land. Um, and I should acknowledge that I'm joining you from Waterloo, Ontario, the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg and neutral people. And I really do give thanks um, to the, the, the original keepers of this land. And I think that's where these are greater conversations. Minister Bennett and Minister uh, Miller have definitely been leading the charge on this, but every single one of us has a role to play. Our government is committed to actually um, having a, a nation to nation relationship. Um, so this whole concept of the federal government, the government of Canada knowing what's best in imposing, <laughs> Prime Minister Justin Trudeau does not believe in that. We actually have to get into communities, build those relationships, rebuild that trust so that we find our way forward. And I think that's where my reference to water boil advisories, we have lifted many of them. And there is a website that's public facing so that everyone can see the progress that we've made. They can see what's being lifted and what's returning, where there is continuous clean drinking water because everyone should have access to it. Um, but it's also really about making sure that we respect that there are self-governed nations and that there is a diversity of perspectives within Indigenous communities. And the fact that each of those relationships have to be built in a meaningful way. And even when the prime minister has first ministers meetings with all the premiers of the provinces and territories, he also meets with the leaders of the Indigenous communities, Métis Nation, as well as the Inuit, because it's important that we actually establish that relationship. And I think it's one that um, we have a lot of work to do. And that's why even recently um, introducing legislation to the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was really important legislation. That was a private member's bill that unfortunately did not make it through the Senate and our government had committed to introducing it at government legislation, mm -hmm. that work has been done. And we really look forward to that work being uh, done and progressing and becoming law, but that is also just one more piece. And so when it comes to the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, the report and the calls to action, our government remains committed to doing that work. And to your earlier question, working with all departments and agencies to make sure that we are taking a whole of government approach and not working in silos. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really important. I think that it's something that Emma and I have also noticed kind of learning about policy throughout the years is the importance of working between departments and not just within your own silos, because oftentimes information doesn't get transmitted or it gets lost or, you know, so that's really awesome to hear. Um, our next question is about Bill C-6, so an act to amend the criminal code looking at, you know, criminalizing conver conversion therapy. So PEI was the first province to ban public funding to conversion therapy in Canada. However, they were not able to ban this entirely because the criminal code falls under the role of the federal government. Um, so did you feel that the federal government was encouraged by the provinces to push this bill forward and how did this influence the work? So I would say um, it's always awesome being the first and you can only <laughs> be the first if there is a second or a third and that kind of stuff. Uh, so PEI should be, I'm really proud of the work that you have done because you're not the only, but you were the first. And it's mm -hmm. clear that all levels of government have a role to play. And we each have avenues to address and stop this heinous practice. We know that conversion therapy is a destructive practice. We know it does not work. And we know that it does not belong in Canada. So across Canada, along with PEI and other provincial legislators and municipalities, they have responded to the harms posed by conversion therapy by prohibi prohibiting or restricting it or certain activities associated with it. So yes, I would say it definitely takes leadership to do this important work. <laughs> the legislation that we have introduced at the federal level builds upon that work 
to ensure that the the work that provinces and territories municipalities have done um, still remains relevant. But you're right, we have a larger scope that we're able to address, and that's why this legislation um, introduced for the second time, we reintroduced it recently. Uh, we would like to see it pass and become law. It is currently at the committee stage, and there's been some really impressive conversations taking place, which also means that we're bringing in the diversity of perspectives. There are people who see that there are concerns with that legislation. This legislation um, does not ban conversations. Having exploratory conversations about one's gender, sexuality, and so forth is entirely accepted through this legislation. What this legislation does do is that you cannot coerce or impose um, your beliefs on an individual. So supporting them in their exploratory conversations and so forth, entirely legit. Um, imposing what is normal, quote unquote, uh, we do not support. And that's what that legislation does. It bans those conversations. It, well, not those conversations. It bans imposing what an individual sees as, quote unquote, normal. It bans uh, imposing conversion therapy on an individual in Canada or a youth in Canada or abroad. Um, it it stops the practice of advertising conversion therapy because we know it's a harmful, destructive practice that does not help individuals. What we want is for every Canadian to be able to live their authentic life, to be able to contribute to society because that not only benefits our communities, it benefits our entire country and economy. So really how do we let every individual be their true authentic self? Um, and that's what this legislation is intended to do. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and yes, PEI's leadership was instrumental. <laughs> uh, so congratulations to the work that went at the local level. <laughs> I was glad to hear that. Yes, thank you for that, Minister. But I think, you know, as much as you are the first, I think as, you know, income, or incoming Vice President-elect Kamala Harris once said, you know, I may be the first, but I'm, you know, going to make sure that I'm not the last. And I think that's really important that we see the federal government stepping up in this respect and I will I'm watching the time and we respect that you are have a very busy schedule so this unfortunately will be our last question um, but I think there's a lot to to pull away from this so I'll jump right into it I think right off the bat from your response on, on the last question pertaining to um, the role the federal government and banning conversion therapy is first and foremost recognizing that it's not accepted that it has created harms in our communities and that we're not tolerating that. And I think starting off from that lens and writing legislation and amending legislation from that standpoint is integral to you know, safeguarding individuals uh, who, who have been historically harmed by that and communities that have been harmed by that, but as well folks um, in the future as well well. Um, one of the items in the bill is that um, it is banned for youth. However, um, under charter considerations from what I've read under the Minister of Justice is that it can't be banned outright, like you said, like those conversations mm -hmm. can still happen um, and, and it's hard to limit it entirely. How do you feel this change from the original intention, which was to ban it you know, entirely, how do you feel this change in the amendment will impact affected groups 
For example, you know, would this potentially create gaps in the sense that we know historically with different conversion therapy practices, it isn't necessarily branded as, you know, come here, we're offering conversion therapy. Oftentimes it's uh, existing in, in hidden silos. And so oftentimes that's created a bit more of a, um, an ominous or kind of um, more kind of gray area around it. So um, do you feel as though this will create potential gaps? So I would say that this bill was created for community by community, and I think that's really important. Uh, this bill was built on activism and survivors, and it's important that we acknowledge uh, their contributions. And I am very grateful to the people who had the courage, especially to share those stories and very intimate um, stories that I carry with me in all of the work that I do. And I know my colleagues do the same thing. The changes to the criminal code proposed in Bill C-6 support and protect LGBTQ2 individuals by criminalizing coercive and systemic systematic efforts to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression into something or someone they are not. The changes proposed in this bill will protect all Canadians from commercialization of conversion therapy, protect minors from conversion therapy, both in Canada and abroad, and protect persons of all ages who are forced to undergo conversion therapy. Um, so Emma, to your point, adults will be able to make their decisions that they want to make, but it's if it's being imposed on them or forced on them that this legislation is then coming into place. In addition, this bill will ban the profiting from conversion therapy. So no matter the age uh, of the client, um, however, despite the harms that conversion therapy is known to cause, once again, there are some adults who might choose to seek it out. So we have taken strong action to criminalize conversion therapy. We're going after everybody who subjects children to this practice. We're going after everybody, anybody who would perform it on an adult against their will. And we're making it so that no one can profit from or advertise this destructive practice. What we want um, out of this bill is to allow us to protect equality rights and ensure that we can build a better, safer, and consciously more inclusive future where children who arrive in this world innocent and free and happy are not taught bigotry or to be ashamed of who they truly are. So I want us all to be conscious of the human aspect, the indi individual toll that is at stake here. This is a reality that many have lived and continue to live in Canada. So it is my job and the job of all parliamentarians to make sure that this bill passes so we can protect Canadians from this harmful and destructive practice. One thing I heard time and time again from community was they wanted legislation to ensure that another generation did not have to undergo this very mm -hmm. harmful and destructive practice. And that's exactly what Bill C6 does. Absolutely. And thank you so much for being with us today, Minister, and spending so much time providing such insightful answers to our many, many very lengthy questions. We really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to be here. I really thank you for having me as well. And I'll tell you, yes, I was only in PEI virtually, but you're <laughs> members of Parliament, uh, Wayne Easter, Sean Casey, Bob Morrissey, as well as Minister Lawrence McCauley, you know, speak highly of the amazing island that you have. And I'll tell you by me being able to have this conversation and the many I had when I was visiting virtually, I'm really just um, exposed and amplified the tremendous impact that you have as a very mighty province. So I really do hope that everyone keeps well and keeps safe. I know the pandemic's been challenging, but I really hope um, that we have an even better and healthier and more inclusive 2021 for all. So my best wishes are with each and every single one of you. Mm.
Absolutely. Thank you. So Thank much, you. I thank you both so much. I have to say, I love talking to like, well, first of all, it's all women on this call, including Yana. <laughs> Um, and then being able to speak to, as Prime Minister just says, not just the leaders of tomorrow, but the leaders of today. Your questions were awesome. They were not lengthy. My answers were lengthy. Um, and I look forward to doing this again with you both. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Minister. Thank you, Anna. Bye, all. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, first and foremost, to Minister Chagger for taking the time with us. It was awesome to be able to learn from her experience and insight as minister. An additional thank you goes to Yana Titarenko, a great friend of ours, as well as a former colleague from the student politics days. She helped set this up, and so we're very appreciative of her doing that. And as well, our music is always from the talented Mr. Shane Pendergast. He's got a show coming up January 13th, 2021. That's at the Trailside, 8 to 10 p.m. You can get tickets online at trailside.ca. Just to reiterate what Emma said, thank you so much to Minister Chagger for your time, as well as to Yana for setting up this interview for us. Well, folks, this is our last episode before the holidays. We'll see you next year as early as January 4th with episodes that are bigger, better, but still have the good old spirit of dialogue. Stay warm, stay safe. Happy holidays. This has been Dialogue.